I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, providers of neuroscience-based learning remediation and learning enhancement programs since 1999. To find out more about LearnFast and individually tailored learning programs for your child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. On this podcast, we talk with researchers, scientists, educators, and educational thought drivers about leading issues in education. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Ron Richard, whose work is a part of Project Zero at Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Project Zero is a 50-year-old organization that began with just a few researchers and now boasts over 30 employees. Ron Richard's work on cultures of thinking has helped transform the process of learning in classrooms around the world. And today we talk specifically about his book, Creating Cultures of Thinking, The Eight Forces We Must Master to Truly Transform Our Schools. It's a challenging read, and in some places confronting, but the stories he tells are quite compelling. Ron Richard, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Colin. We're here to talk today about your work with cultures of thinking, and in particular I want to make reference to your book, Creating Cultures of Thinking, The Eight Forces We Must Master to Truly Transform Our Schools, a great title by the way. Your work on cultures of thinking is listed as a, a part of Project Zero at Harvard School of Education. Just briefly for our listeners, how did that begin and how did that emerge into what it is today? Well, Project Zero is one of the oldest research and development groups in education in the world. We're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. Um, most people are familiar with Howard Gardner and David Perkins, who were um, two of the first original co-directors of Project Zero. And the kind of guiding force behind it has always been a really kind of deep interest in issues of learning, of understanding, of creativity, of intelligence, and how those things are promoted and how they live in the world in all kinds of different contexts. So one of the really exciting things about um, our research group, which is quite diverse, is that we really do focus on learning rather than schooling. Oh, okay. Allows us to really focus on, um, you know, how people learn in all kinds of different contexts. Um, so although we do work in schools, and a lot of my research is very classroom-based and school-based, um, we aren't kind of limited to how do we help kids do school better. We focus more on how do we help um, learn better, how do we help develop intelligence, how do we help develop um, thinking dispositions, um, creativity, agency, all those kinds of things. So at any one time, there are probably about um, anywhere from 15 to 25 different projects um, going on, but they all kind of unite together with that kind of common interest in learning. I find that an interesting perspective, actually, because we often talk about how to improve our schools, you know, how to how to fix education, but we don't often talk about, at least not in, in my experience, we don't use the, the, the language of improving learning. So I find that perspective very interesting. Coming to the eight forces, uh, you list eight forces, uh, which are, I'll just mention them quickly, expectations, language, time, modeling, opportunities, routines, interactions, and environment, all very large topics in their own right. Uh, by way of introduction, I'll, I'll start with a comment from the first force, expectations, and then move on to a couple of others. Now, you talk about, or you mention, not so much having expectations of our students, but expectations for our students. And this resonated strongly because, in my experience, you'll see the language of expectations of 
Everywhere you'll see it on signs on the wall, you'll hear teachers say, our expectations of you today are, or my expectation of your effort in this task is. Um, But you don't often hear people say, my expectations for your future or my expectations for what you might do down the track. You know, it's a very, it's a subtle, but it's a very important difference of language. And it's almost as if it's become more about us than it is about them. My question to you is, to what extent does this difference set the tone for our classrooms and schools? Well, I would absolutely agree with what you just said, Colin, which has been my experience as well. Um, that when I first began talking with people about expectations, I found that there was a lot of confusion because people did, in fact, um, think about those as their expectations of students. And one thing that I like to say about our expectations of another human being, whether it be of our students or our spouse or anyone else, is expectations of other people are cheap because they don't cost us anything. And so it's easy to put things forth as things that we would like our students to give to us, that we would like to see from them. Um, But that isn't really what guides a classroom or really helps in terms of its culture. It's not that those are inappropriate. You know, just even hearing the, the difference between having an expectation of independence meaning we just want students to come in and be independent, um, to act independently, versus an expectation for independence, which that means for us as educators, part of the onus is on us to create the conditions, to create the supports, to nurture that development. It means we certainly do want our students to be independent, but that we are collaborators in that. So I absolutely think that this is really, and I chose to put that um, cultural force first, in the book precisely for the reason because I feel that it is so foundational that these are the guiding things for us as teachers and around the world, you know, we've focused teachers on, you know, the new curriculum coming in the national curriculum. And we've kind of sent teachers the message that it's all about the delivery of the curriculum. It's all about the preparation for, for the test. And, a different way of looking at what we do is that those expectations we have for our students are the big picture. That's what we are guiding them in. That's what we are allowing them to kind of grow into, that we are thinking beyond the immediate, beyond just the delivery of our curriculum, but really guiding our students. So I would absolutely agree that that expectations for our students are the guiding force for us in the classroom. I think that ties in fairly strongly with the second force. Now, it's, it's not my intention to actually go through them in order, but it's just it just so happens that this is the way I've picked it out. But uh, moving to language, uh, I think it's a good time to mention a particular quote that you've got in your book, and I, I really like this quote. Uh, and it goes like this, and that is the thing about language. It is at once ubiquitous, surrounding us constantly, yet we hardly take note of its subtleties and power. And due to its constant presence, it is shaping our behavior, interactions, thinking, attention, and feelings in ways that we might not be consciously aware of. Now, I I read that and I thought, yeah, okay, with so many competing inputs from the media, we've got advertising, we've got popular culture, how do we go about raising awareness of the importance of language, this thing that we take for granted? And, And I might add, in particular, language development. How do we do that? What I have found is that people and the teachers are particularly fascinated by the research on language and the way that language subtly 
influences us. And, and language is, you know, and that just isn't in, in the classroom, but that is in life, you know, that, that, you know, the whole idea of branding, the whole idea of, you know, what are the messages? How do we, you know, connect with people? Um, that language is sending all kinds of cues constantly. Um, I was at a school once where the kind of administrative level or the leadership level referred to themselves as management. Now that sends a very, you know, just that term, how we use to kind of describe what we do. If you think about yourself as a manager, if you think about yourself as management, that's sending messages. Mm. That's going to, to guide us. So, and I think that, that people recognize kind of the power and the, the kind of subtlety of how we are using language. So there is a very high interest in it. At the same time, what I you know mentioned there is that um, because it operates on so many different levels, um, it, it, and because we are constantly using language, it can be sometimes difficult to monitor that language, to be aware of what we are doing. And one of the things that I found is, has really helped in terms of developing that awareness is in many of the schools that I, I work with, um, we set up observational triads in which people go into one another's classrooms just to observe the language, the dialogue, the discourse, the questioning that's going on, and to become more aware of that, that when you're more aware of it in other um, situations, then you become more aware of it in your own situation as well. And so it, that's one of the things that really helps, I think, to, to develop that awareness. I also use a lot of, of videotapes when we're looking at a videotape and we're watching a classroom just to pay attention to the language. You know, for instance, as a teacher used um, what I call the language of community, the, talking about what we are going to learn our understanding. So something as simple and as subtle as just our use of pronouns there is sending messages that we are including ourselves in the group, that we see the class as a community, that we see this understanding as a collective endeavor rather than only an individual endeavor. So being aware of all of those kinds of subtleties um, are very powerful and they do slowly begin to kind of creep into then our own way of speaking in our own use of language as well. What about the actual way that we talk? I mean, I, I work in an environment where uh, I, I'm new to this area. I've only been here for two years. I, um, I came from a different part of Australia, or a different city, and the, the dialect here is quite different. So I, I like to describe it as a broad Australian accent. And so my accent or the way I speak is, sounds different. Does the way we talk, as in the accent and, and how we actually enunciate words, does that make a difference too? I'm not familiar with a lot of, of research on that because certainly people do pick up different patterns of speech and, and um, you know, the, the regional dialects that the people have um, within a country and then, of course, um, across different countries. So there there are those things. but And, and I do have to admit that most of the, the research that I draw on and have conducted myself has been with um, only within English Um that there are, you know, subtleties and things in different languages. Although when I, I speak with groups in, in other countries, there seems to be a real resonance as well with a lot of these language moves as well. But in terms of just um, kind of the dialect, people tend to adjust um, 
to that pretty quickly. So even though, you know, your patterns of speech may be slightly different from from your students, um, gradually their, their ears accustomed to your way of speaking. So it's more thinking about, um, you know, the words we use because they are um, triggers for us. We, we often speak in metaphors. So again, when you label something management, you're, you're putting that frame around something. The way that we, when we talk about um, school as work, we're using a metaphor of the workplace for what students are doing, which to my mind also becomes problematic. And I talk a lot in the book about using that metaphor of work versus learning and how that can detract students from that focus on learning because then they just focus on doing the work. It's all about kind of getting the points, getting the score, um, the compliance rather than the focus on learning. And of course Mm. we, there, there is a lot of, you know, there is a lot of activity to learning. It's not that you don't do things, but that difference between work and learning is largely one of purpose. Um, you know, there were years ago in educational research, one of the things was talked about a lot was time on task. Well, think about just that labeling <laughs> about how that time on task, what it, what it focuses our attention on. And so it's, you know, it, it's not focused on the learning. It's focused again on just kind of uh, a very kind of industrial, you know, are we using time in this very um, efficient way? And sometimes learning actually isn't very efficient. You talk about, uh, or you mentioned a wide body of research around language and, and indeed there is. And you mentioned several ways in the book that we can use language to create a culture of thinking, such as the language of thinking itself, uh, the language of community, the language of identity, initiative, mindfulness, and uh, praise and feedback. Two of them I'd like to focus on. First one is the language of listening. Um, it seems as if we're always asking students to listen. I mean, can you listen up, please? Can I have your attention? You need to listen to this. If there's anything you're going to listen to today, then you've got to listen to this. Um, and you say that teachers, particularly beginning teachers, struggle to listen back, yet they're always the ones who are asking people to listen. And the reason why this is important, as you say, is that it's a powerful way in which we we can show respect for another person's thinking. Why do we not spend more time on this? I would absolutely agree that we need to spend more time. I think one of the um, the things that, that I've picked up being in classrooms and thinking about the culture is that a lot of the things that we do ask students to do like listen, like discuss, um, like collaborate, we don't teach them how to do those. And then we wind up being disappointed when, uh, you know, some students, a few students seem to do that very well, but most students don't, and some students do it horribly. And we really have to recognize that these are our learned skills. How do we help students um, to learn to listen, to discuss ideas, um, to respond to one another um, to have that kind of dialogue. So I, I absolutely agree that those things need to be taught um, and, and we don't spend enough time doing those. The other thing about the language of listening, in addition to being taught, is lang- the language of listening is one of the things that we model that barely will listen better than the teacher listens. And so if we are models of listening, 
then we show our students what listening looks like and we provide that model for them to begin to emulate so that they can listen more effectively. You know, and it would sound like, you know, on the surface, you could assume that, well, a language of listening is about being silent, but it isn't about being silent. Um, it is about attending to what a person says rather than one of the, the problems and one of the reasons why people tend not to listen is in that silence when the other person is speaking, we aren't really listening. We're being silent, but we're actually thinking about what we're going to say next. Mm. And that interrupts us from the listening. So, to, so one of the you know, key moves for us as listeners is often to put that kind of that need to interject, that need um, you know, for us to talk kind of on the sideline and really be able to listen rather than merely thinking about what we're, we're going to say. In the previous book I wrote um, on making thinking visible, one of the routines in there is, is the microlab protocol, which is a technique for actually teaching students how to listen um, in small groups and giving them the tools and the time to begin to do that. I, I think this is incredibly important, and I, I would support anything that, that tries to get people to, to listen uh, to, to listen better because listening and speaking and responding, and, and I guess this is where you're talking about the absence of silence in, in listening rather than just being silent. I mean, those things are a foundational part of human existence. I mean, if we couldn't, if we couldn't communicate and listen to each other and interact, I mean, I think we'd struggle to survive. And given that language underpins every subject we study, uh, this needs to be something that we, that really does come out and and into the forefront of, of what we do. So I think that's probably uh, why this could be so difficult because it actually requires it requires work. It's, you can't just take for granted. I mean, uh, what I'm hearing from you is that you can't just take for granted that because someone's sitting in front of you, they're actually listening to what you're saying. That's right. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, for, for teachers, one of the, the elements of work is that. Um, when we focus on listening, there's also a shift in terms of the focus of the classroom, that typically classrooms are focused on the teacher. So we are able to command attention. Um, we are able to um, grab the floor anytime we want. So we are, are the speakers, and many teachers are very used to being the speakers. They run the show. Um, but the problem with that is the more that we are that um, – kind of dominating presence in a classroom, that means the less students are stepping forward. So we also have to kind of lessen um, our ego as teachers instead of wanting to be front and center, which doesn't mean that we don't have an incredibly important role in guiding and directing because listening actually gives us a, a ton of information that we need to then use um, and put into effect but it means that we are um, allowing our students to step forward rather than us always being the dominant voice in the classroom. More from our conversation in a moment. When we come back, Ron takes us through the tricky force of time. For more conversation about thinking, you can explore the Learning Capacity podcast archives. In episode 22, we talk with Dr. Martha Burns, Director of Neuroscience Education at Scientific Learning Corporation, about the concept of critical thinking. Critical thinking, firstly, how do we define critical thinking? And does it mean different things to different people? Yes, it does mean different things to different people. So there are different definitions depending on the perspective you come from. 
Generally speaking, most people think of critical thinking as thinking about thinking. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a critical thinking task when I don't just do a, do something by rote. You know, I actually start thinking about what is the best way to do it. Or... Be sure to check it out after this podcast. And remember, you can find the Learning Capacity podcast at soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Coming now to the force of time, the opening statement in the chapter reads, learning to be its master rather than its victim. Again, this resonated strongly. I suspect you've met quite a few victims. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's one of the things that whenever you, you talk with a, a group of teachers about anything, the, one of the, f- the first things is, yes, but there's no time. Mm. Um, and so... It, it, it's true enough. And I mean, I, I taught for many years, so I, I have that experience. However, we do need to recognize that lack of time isn't something that is unique to teaching. As human beings, we have a limited amount of time. So, you know, time is a precious commodity in, in all situations. So, yes, it's absolutely limited in the classroom. Um, and we have to, to think about that. Um, but it, it's limited in life. And so we have to just recognize this as part of a, a human condition. And part of that, and I think also the more that we say, yes, but there's no time, yes, but there's no time, the more we are actually indicating that we are the victims rather than the masters of our time. Yeah, I couldn't help having the Pink Floyd song, Time, just sort of singing away in the back of my mind as I read through this chapter, because uh, the, the first line of the song says, ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. And uh, I, I couldn't help thinking, wow, teachers are really busy and they say that they don't have the time, yet I can imagine that many students are ticking away the moments of a dull day. And so you've got this two sides of the same coin thing. The time's dragging on for the student. They're looking at the, looking at the clock thinking, why isn't this lesson finished? And the teacher's thinking, I've got all these things to do before the end of the day and I just don't have any time. And you tell a story of an Australian teacher, Nathan, uh, from the book, who works in a high-stakes environment, teaching senior students in preparation for their end-of-school exams. I'm familiar with that high-stakes environment. Yet he seems to be calm. He's relaxed. He's got plenty of time. Now, I'm sure there's a lot going on behind that. But for teachers who just can't believe that such a thing could exist, how do we start a conversation with them about this idea in an effective way? Well, I think what one place to start. And I think that some, um, one of the things that Nathan does and that I think many effective teachers do is they have to look at time as an investment. And so to think about, you know, particularly at the beginning of a a school year, um, sometimes at the beginning of a class, sometimes at the beginning of a unit, you think about what are the things that in the long run will save you time? How do you go slow in order to go fast? So, you know, having strong relationships with students, building that, focusing students on understanding, developing routines and structures and supports for students to do the kind of deep learning that you want them to, um, really modeling the kinds of discourse and conversation you want in the classroom. So spending that kind of investment that sets students up Um, and set a classroom up to be more effective and more efficient in the long run. And that's one of the things I I found over and over again in in highly effective teachers is that they do spend a lot of time investing their time in order to save time later. Um, 
by, by building kind of that capacity with students. Now, I can imagine, though, that having this conversation with a teacher or any professional, because you said you did say that uh, time or the lack of time or the finite nature of time is not unique to teaching, that everyone's got the same 24-hour clock. Um, it, I, I think it might be the sort of concept that would cause somewhat of a brain freeze with, with many people, particularly those people who really struggle to, to, to come to grips with the idea of investing to make time, because investing requires giving something up or putting something aside. So it in, implies work. And, you know, I've had conversations in, uh, in inverted commas in the lunchroom and about this sort of thing. And, and yet it rarely goes down well. And yet I fully subscribe to it. So it's almost as if I've sort of gone through the, the, the glass wall. I've, I've broken the sound barrier. I'm on the other side. And if I was to try and communicate the value of investing back to these people, What's coming back to the idea of language? What sort of language should I be using with these people? I think one of it is, is talking about you know the language of you know foundation that, that when you are investing time, you are laying a foundation. And one of the things that you're doing also, um, going back to the expectations, is you're investing your time in order to set up more student independence that you are nurturing them into that independence. That one of the ways that, that we can um, invest time is that when we are setting students up to be um, more efficient, more independent, then more is going to happen. It, one of the things that I think can be problematic for teachers is you know, that, that if you don't take on that investment, then it's easy just to blame the students. Well, you know, I was doing my job, but the students just weren't. Um, and so it becomes their fault rather than are we really setting them up for the success? I mean, I do think the language of, of investment, the language of, of foundations is really important for us to kind of think about. I guess it's important to try and communicate uh, a certain sense of value, as in, this is not just an investment so that someone else will get a payoff. Everyone gets a payoff. You know, if everyone is less of a victim of time and more a master of it, then we all get on better. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it's very much a two-way thing. Look, um, there's one other thing that I'd really like to talk about as well, and that uh, before I ask, how do we make a start with this? But that was the force of environment going all the way to the end of the list now. I love the comment that you've pointed out by Sir Ken Robinson about creating new habits, but also habitats. And the, the reason why this is also uh, resonating strongly with me at the moment is that my son has just started kindergarten and we had an information evening earlier in the week. And it struck me again as to how the environment for him is so different to environments for senior students. I mean, the environment is, is it's vibrant, it's colorful, and it's beautiful. And, and one thing stood out in that uh, there was a shelf which had a lot of uh, cylindrical containers and... In each one of these containers, there were upturned, sharpened pencils. Some were just graphite, some were colored, but there, were, there was a sea of, of pencils and it was just so beautiful. I just went over to it and I, I just had to pick up a pencil and draw something. How, if the difference between a sterile environment and a vibrant environment is, is so obvious, it's so easy to see. I mean, you look in one classroom, it's sterile. You look in another classroom, it's vibrant. Why is, why is this not more obvious to us and why don't we do something about it? Well, I, I would agree with you on the difference. I would add one um, kind of 
book into the story that, that you told about, you know, your son's classroom there in, in kindergarten. And, and that is that many secondary teachers will say, will dismiss that and say, well, yes, that's appropriate for primary, you know, and, and then, then of course we get more serious. And the bookend that I would add is, well, look at what businesses do. There is a huge interest in organizations and in businesses and thinking about the environments in which people work, that how do we allow people, you know, particularly when that work is meant to be creative and learning is a creative process, um, that when we want people to collaborate, any organization that cares about that, you will find them caring about the environment. So then I think when we've sandwiched the, the secondary um, senior classrooms in between this rich primary environment and a rich adult environment, then it's really more stark in saying, well, why is it that mm. we have said at this age level that it doesn't matter when it matters before and it matters afterwards? So it isn't that you've become more serious because you could say, well, adult life is much more serious, much more high stakes and they're attending to those things. So um, luckily, I think that this is beginning to change um, slowly, not fast enough. But there is, you know, a lot of, of movement in terms of um, architecture, revamping schools. Actually, uh, quite a lot of this is, um, is going on in many Australian schools um, as well, really thinking about how is it that we make classrooms more transparent? Um, how is it we not necessarily create open classrooms, but we put in glass walls that make the, the learning more visible, that we create more of a sense of community happening there? Um, and one other kind of connection I would make to your story, you know, you, you mentioned the, the pencils there, the kind of I, and some people would talk about that from the, the Reggio Emilia perspective with the idea of it's a provocation. It, it provoked you mm. um, to pick up and to do something. And I think that that's also a very useful language for us to take into secondary and say, well, what is it that we want to begin to you know, provoke our students with? What is it, you know, how is it that we create those opportunities for conversations, for ideas um, to kind of take hold and be a spark. So luckily, I think that things are beginning to move, but they do, particularly in, in secondary schools, need to move even further. Yeah, it's become more striking to me because I wonder whether people who are further down the track or um, th those managers that we talked about uh, previously might have lost sight or forgotten or maybe it was just too long ago that you know we we say uh to to come back to the words that you were using that's okay for primary but as they get older we have to get more serious and i, I would i would argue well hang on a second my son has just started school i mean how much more high stakes can you get <laughs> you know this is a major major transformation it's a major milestone in his life it's a foundational thing you want him to start well i, I mean i would argue that it's correct in reverse what we actually have because, you know, we talk about high stakes exams at the end, but what about that high stakes beginning? I mean, if you get off to a bad start, you're really in trouble. That's right. Let's just imagine that we've got thousands of listeners out there who are saying, 
Yep. Okay. I've heard this conversation. I don't know everything about it, but I've heard enough to know that uh, developing a culture of thinking sounds like a really great idea. And, and I totally subscribe to the idea myself. But we've got people who are maybe just being exposed to it for the first time. Uh, they haven't seen your book and it's not the language that's commonly used around the workplace. They feel completely alone, but they really want to make a start. I'm, I'm going to imagine that there are lots of these people out there. How does a person do that? Is it as simple as making a choice? On one hand, it's certainly recognizing if a teacher at the beginning hasn't thought much about this. One of the, the, the cases that I make about the importance of culture is that traditionally we've, we've put all the emphasis on the curriculum, um, particularly on policymakers um, focus on just changing the curriculum every 10 years or so. And university folks often put a lot of emphasis on instruction. Curriculum and instruction are really important. But I think the third leg of that stool, which is often miss, missing, is the culture. And we don't give teachers, teachers in training, um, you know, teachers in service, the tools for really understanding how that culture is built. We kind of leave it up to chance and and. and my research has been, well, how is it that we demystify this process of building culture so that people really do have the tools? So you mentioned these eight cultural forces. And so becoming aware of those. And one of the things that is creating that culture then is when those eight cultural forces get pulled into alignment so that the messages that being that are being sent are consistent across all of those. So what a so it's not enough to merely change your language, but you know, if you're using a, a language of community and you're trying to create that community, are you also creating opportunities for community? Is your environment also organized in the order for that to take hold? So it's when those eight cultural forces are cohesive, that's when a really strong culture exists. So I think familiarizing yourself with kind of these eight cultural forces, you can start with any one, but beginning to think about, well, what message am I sending through that particular cultural force? Is that aligned with what I value, with what I'm trying to create for my students? And then you gradually move on. I think that one of the, the most powerful things also is you know, for any teacher to find um, a colleague or two to begin this process with. Um, because it, it isn't it isn't the straightforward programmatic approach that we are so used to in education. It's not here's the list, just go and do this. That it is a constant cycle of kind of refinement, and in that sense, then teachers are always growing. And, and for me, that is what makes what makes teaching such an exciting endeavor. It's because we are always growing. We are always doing better as we know better, that we are creating a much more kind of powerful learning um, culture for our students. Mm. Now, you've got uh, a couple of events coming up in Australia in February, March, and uh, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. Uh, this is going to be the 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 general theme of what you're talking about. Can you be more specific about those events? Well, Project Zero, for um, over the past 20 years, we've done um, summer institutes in Cambridge, Massachusetts. About five years ago, we began to do um, some traveling conferences. 
And originally we did those in the United States, but then more recently we've, we've kind of expanded and done those in um, Europe. And then this will be our, our first two in Australia. So many of the principal researchers at um, Project Zero, Howard Gardner and David Perkins, um, Daniel Wilson, um, Sherry Tishman, um, many of those are coming out. So my project, the Culture of Thinking Work, represents um, one slice of Project Zero, but we, the, this will be a, a, a two- or three-day opportunity to really hear from those um, researchers, um, both in kind of more traditional keynote addresses to the whole group, but then also more importantly in much smaller um, two-hour settings that are much more workshop interactive, um, the chance to be in a small group with one of the researchers to really um, discuss and explore ideas in a really kind of hands-on interactive way. So it's a real open invitation to a lot of Project Zero ideas. Well, it sounds like uh, it's going to be very beneficial for a lot of people. And once again, I thank you for your work in this area. I think it's uh, very inspiring. Dr. Ron Richard, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Colin. You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFast. To find out more about upcoming Project Zero events in Melbourne and Sydney, Australia in March 2016, visit kconline.org/events/pz. That's kconline, C-A-S-I-E, online.org/events/pz. If you'd like to comment on this podcast, send us an email to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.